Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Our subject for today is uh, our motivation for serving God. And uh, we, hope that, uh, we hope that we gain a little insight into that. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we do pray to this morning that you might give us a little deeper understanding of why we are here. And for those of us, perhaps, who are active in ministry, why we are. We want, Lord, to serve you from the best of motives. And so, Father, I ask your assistance as we speak. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you'd make our time honoring to you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Some time ago, which is a preacher's way of saying, it could have been centuries ago, but I want you to make it, I want you to think that it's recent because I'm desperate for an illustration. Some time ago, a 21-year-old university student was walking down the road. A storm blew up suddenly. A lightning bolt fell from the sky and struck him to the ground. He looked to heaven and he vowed that he would enter the ministry. This did happen centuries ago. In 1505, the man was Martin Luther, and his actual words were, St. Anne, help me, I will become a monk. And he did. His biographer said that he entered the monastery out of fear for his eternal soul and his salvation. That was his motivation. What is your story? Why are you in the ministry? Why do you serve God? What are your motives? And is a study of motives important? Why do you want to be a pastor of a church? Why do you want to leave the pastorate? Why do you want to move to another church? These are questions, I think, that are worth asking. I understand the Catholics are having a little meeting in the Vatican today to examine the motives of some of their ministers. We find that many times motives for ministry can come under suspicion. Should we be sus suspicious of or question the motives of those who are preaching prosperity or having these miracle services? I recently read an article in our local newspaper about this uh, trend towards uh, title inflation, how pastors are bestowing honorary doctorates on one another and the title of bishop. What in the world's going on there? Does that speak to our motives for ministry? At one time or another, I hope that we have at least questioned our motives and why we try to live godly and serve God in ministry. And in my talk, I really want to focus on serving God actively and living actively for Him. I know that we can address motives in a lot of other areas of motives why we don't sin and things like that, but I know that this group is largely made up of those who are active in ministry of some kind and vocational ministry, and I thought it would be more instructive to focus a little bit more on that. What, it, what is it that motivates us to press forward in godly discipline, to endure, to stay in the fight, and to minister? 
Why study motivation? You don't really need to know why you're motivated in order to serve God, do you? Of course not. But I've found, when I wanted to look into this topic, that there wasn't much written on it. There hasn't been a lot said on it, mostly actually from our camp, the free grace side of the question. We have a lot to say about motives. I don't think that it's been well examined in detail, so I wanted to kind of break the ice on that. But motives have been mentioned on everything that we've been talking about so far, to some degree or other. When we mention the judgment seat of Christ, motives automatically come into play. And then on the other hand, if we have unworthy motives on the personal level, we certainly would want to know what they are because you and I want to please God. But motivations, I believe, also reflect the very core of our spirituality. That's what spirituality really is about, isn't it? It's not outward deeds. Outward deeds can be deceiving. They don't sometimes say very much about motives. Like the three Boy Scouts who came up to their scoutmaster bragging, hey, we did our good deed for the day. What did you do? We helped an old lady across the street. Well, did it really take all three of you to do that? Sure did. She didn't want to go. Deeds are not always a good measurement for spirituality. And so we do away with lordship theology that looks at deeds and the fruit inspectors are out the door. We want to talk about what really honors God, not just what we see, but what we do not see. Didn't Jesus teach us that sin comes from the heart and that we shouldn't just look at deeds? He spoke of the Pharisees who had no shortage of deeds, but said of them that they clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside are full of extortion and self-indulgence. He called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. He said in Matthew 7, 22 through 23, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Clearly, good deeds are not a clear measure of spirituality. And good deeds can spring Apparent good deeds can spring from bad motives. In God's economy, the only properly motivated deeds, only properly motivated deeds are rewarded. So I think it's a good study for us to try to understand why we want to serve and minister for God. Now, in a study like this, there's a danger of becoming quagmired in introspection. And that's not my purpose at all. I'm by nature not a very introspective person. I just want to please God, and that's what's prompted my questions. I asked a, a young man one time uh, if he was introspective, and he said, Charlie, I could draw you a map of my psyche. And I said, well, that's good. I don't even know that I had a psyche, you know. That's the difference between us. And I'm not going to forge into psychology because I'm not qualified there either. But so much of our motivations, I believe, are even unconscious. We're not aware of them. And sometimes it's good to try to be a little introspective. I think a key verse in all of this, or a key passage in all of this, is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, where Paul, who had to defend himself and his motives against his accusers in Corinth, said this, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, 
evidently he did some introspection. Yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. And listen, he says, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts, then each one's praise will come from God. We can be introspective. We can guess at our motives, but be careful of your judgments, your final conclusions, because only God will judge in the end. And that's good news, isn't it? God is the final judge of our motives. But I think that sometimes when we examine our motives, we may be in for a surprise. It's a confusing study. It's a confusing route. We wonder sometimes why people get into the pastorate, for example. One fellow wrote an article about psychology and the pastor, and this is what Basil Jackson said. It's a little lengthy quote, but you'll find it interesting. He said, it comes often as a shock to pastors to learn that not all of their motivation for entering the ministry was highly altruistic and based on the desire to preach the word and honor the Lord. Of course, this may well have been the conscious motivation, but this does not rule out the existence of additional unconscious determinants, nor is the presence of such unconscious motivation to be considered harmful or sinful. It is only when the unconscious factors are denied and not recognized that they are liable to produce problems. He goes on, as with persons in any other helpful profession, sometimes the motivation to enter the ministry is to gain the appreciation, attention, and acceptance which is personally needed, but which is not being supplied elsewhere. Sometimes it is the unconscious desire to dominate others and in effect become little popes, which is an easy goal to achieve if one ministers to immature people. Many pastors receive much unconscious gratification from being able to direct people and set them straight. Many pastors, after self-examination, have discovered that part of their original motivation was the need to be infallible, and the church situation often plays right into this pathology. Another very important motivating factor in some pastors is the presence of a repressed and unrecognized reservoir of anger and hostility. In this case, the pastor will probably become a preacher whose favorite and most frequent message is one of hellfire and brimstone. Yet he himself will have absolutely no awareness of the great satisfaction he receives from roasting his flock over the flames of hell. The study of motivation is well suited for the free grace interpretation of the Bible. It keeps grace central. It negates legalism. It recognizes the biblical emphasis on the judgment seat of Christ, eternal significance and rewards. Grace naturally leads to the question of motivation. Grace motivates us with the very best of motivations. We don't serve God in order to be accepted by Him, but because we are accepted by Him. Or as Dave Anderson said, not because we have to, but because we want to. Why do we want to? I'd like to focus on mostly the New, well, just about all the New Testament, just to limit our study to that today. <laughs> There's a lot of passages that speak of or imply motivation. And you'll notice that uh, sometimes it's only implied and that as we study together, we're not trying to put it in tight categories because there's so much overlap. Many motivations can come into play at one time. Let's talk about some illegitimate motivations. For example, legalism. That was Luther's motivation, one kind of legalism, to serve God and to earn his salvation. A salvation by works. Every other religion besides true biblical Christianity, of course, 
falls into that category. And much of what goes under Christianity, but is really churchianity, would fall under that category. I think we would be appalled at the number of people who claim to be Protestant Christians in our churches today who are serving in some way to earn their eternal acceptance with God. You and I know that salvation is by grace alone. There's also a, a more subtle legalism that works in those who really are Christians and their sense of, I must serve God in order just to be a, a good Christian and acceptable to Him, and I must earn His favor instead of serving Him because He has accepted. I, I need to keep serving in order to stay acceptable to Him. And so they work on the performance basis. But we know that God has accepted us in Jesus Christ, and we are His sons, and we would serve for different reasons. There's also false guilt, you know, those who would in some form of penance work off past sins by serving God. I remember the first time I, I got drunk at the age of like 13 or 14. I came home, I stayed out all night, worried my parents to death. Came home the next morning after almost no sleep. First thing I did was I went to the shed, I got the lawnmower out and mowed the lawn. <laughs> I just felt like I had to work that guilt off. You do feel better, you know. But is that a proper motivation? Or self-seeking, financial gain, preeminence, power over people, trying to impress others, self-aggrandizement, to prove your spirituality. Jesus pointed to the Pharisees and said, the only reason you're giving and praying like you are is to get the applause of men. They were trying to impress people. The scribes loved public recognition and the perks they received for their outward spirituality. We're told that Judas was one of the disciples so he could milk the treasury. Paul recognized those in the city of Philippi who preached from selfish ambition, he says in Philippians chapter 1. He warned Timothy that some teachers suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. 1 Timothy 6. And Paul had to continually defend himself against those who questioned his motives. That's why he didn't take compensation when he was in Corinth. And Peter talked about false teachers who followed the way of Balaam, which might be a good category for our prosperity preachers today. So even Christians can serve God for self-serving reasons, but that's not really serving God, is it? And those motives will not be rewarded and recognized by our Lord. So let's talk about the biblical legitimate biblical motivations. They're not easily sorted. They're not easily put in order, but I've put them in a certain order that made a little bit of sense to me. And so we want to start with love. I think you would agree that love has to be the highest and the purest motive because love is totally other-centered. And our love for God has to be accompanied by a love for others, the great commandment tells us. Let's take little Johnny for an example. Little Johnny may clean his room because he fears punishment. He may clean his room because he desires a reward for it. He may clean his room because it's a duty. But doesn't he act out of the most virtuous motive when he, for no other reason than to, out of love for his parents and a desire to please them with nothing to gain, cleans his room? We all recognize how hypothetical the situation is. But don't let that take away from the impact. You only know how 
real that is to me. One way that love expresses itself is in obedience. In John 14, 21, Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In 1 John 5, 2, we read, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. The nature of love is that it manifests itself in obedience, but in other ways also. Love manifests itself in a desire to glorify the object of our love, for example. To glorify or to honor, to exalt the object of our love. The opposite of sinful self-love is to exalt someone else. Jesus persisted to the cross, saying, For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. His desire was to glorify the Father he loved. The nature of love is that it can also express itself in wanting to please another person, the object of our affection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul speaks about the possibility of marriage. And he points out that those who are married have to please their spouse, but those who remain single can please the Lord. Obviously drawing a parallel to the love relationship in marriage to the love relationship with God. So pleasing another is a part of a loving relationship, and there's many passages in the New Testament that appeal to us to serve God and and to obey Him in order to please Him. And then love can also express itself in wanting to know the object of our love more intimately. We know that in the Old Testament, the word know often was used for sexual intimacy, getting to know one on a deeper level. Paul says that he was driven by a desire to know Christ, Philippians 3. And maybe this is how we should view the idea of abiding in Christ. I think that the the ideas of love, obedience, and abiding come together in passages like John 15, 9 through 10. He says, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. But love for God always must be accompanied by love for others. It is expected. The two commandments cannot be separated. A second like it doesn't mean a second in priority. It means a second in logical sequence that comes automatically from the first commandment to love God with all of our hearts. When we love someone, we care about what they care about. When we love God, we care about the people that he loves. This is beautifully brought together in John chapter 21, where Jesus restores Peter to ministry and to fellowship. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Let's examine your motives, Peter. Do you love me? Peter couldn't quite bring himself to that level. But he did confess a certain kind of love to Jesus. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. You want to show a love for me? Show it to my sheep. Jesus assumed that vertical love elicits in a corresponding horizontal love. I do believe that love is the chief motivation for service and good works. Uh, If we want to serve God, we will do it out of love first. And that will lead to obedience and a desire to glorify Him and please Him and to know Him better and to love the objects of His love. Let's talk about another motivation. We'll call it gratitude. Johnny might clean his room. 
because he's grateful that his parents took him to the zoo that morning. We're grateful for what Christ has done for us and all the blessings that we have received by grace, free, undeserved blessings. And we express that gratitude by turning around and serving him. I believe it's difficult to separate gratitude from love. We have the story in the New Testament of the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. And Jesus pointed to her and said, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. And so we know that she did that out of love. But didn't she also do it out of a sense of gratitude for being forgiven for her sins? We can't separate the two. Gratitude is a natural result of grace. It's a motivation I think appealed to in Romans chapter 12 when for 11 chapters, Paul tells us the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, the new identity, the position that we have, how we're part of his big eternal plan. All of this for free. And it says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, a reasonable service. Reasonable? A reasonable way of showing our gratitude to God. Paul seems to be motivated by gratitude in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's as if he's saying, what can I do but give myself for him? Gratitude seems to be behind his whole ministry. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Gratitude for grace is an expected, fitting, and healthy response to God's gracious actions towards us. Someone has said that our lives as Christians should be one big thank you to God. Another has said that gratitude is one of the hardest emotions to express in words. What can you do much more than say thank you? Thank you very much. You don't know how much I thank you. Sometimes we just have to show it with our actions, don't we? And so we show our gratitude by serving God. A third motivation I find is eternal significance, a desire to fulfill God's eternal purpose for us. I don't see it here, eternal significance, so much as a reward as I do a return. And what I mean is a return to God's original purpose for us. His purpose for us was never limited to the short years of life. His purpose for us has always been eternal. The Scripture says He's put eternity in our hearts, and I believe that as eternal beings, we are driven to fulfill that eternal purpose. And when we find a way of doing that, we are motivated. Our boy, little Johnny, might clean his room because he understands that this act expand, expands his significance in the home and may bring the possibility of a greater role for him in the future. God's purpose for us at the beginning was to rule this earth. Of course, Adam lost that right and that power and the ability. But God's plan has been to restore that in a second Adam, and we with him will rule in the coming kingdom in varying degrees determined in how and what we do in this life. In the parable of the Minas, Christ taught that responsible stewardship will earn corresponding responsibilities to rule over cities. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 30, 
ruling with Christ was a motivation and a consolation for those who had left everything to follow him. In 2 Timothy 2.12, we're told that if we endure, we shall also reign with him. There is significance in eternity for us as we rule with Christ. Now, this is different from entering into heaven. We know that the scriptures speak of inheriting eternal life and inheriting the kingdom. And I believe Romans 8.17 says that our inheritance is connected to our suffering with Christ. Peter separates mere entry from the kingdom with an abundant entry based on one's Christian virtues in 2 Peter 1. The difference between entering into heaven, entering into the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom is one I think that's ignored by the Reformed Calvinists and their views. They only see entrance, and in so doing, they neglect a wonderful opportunity for motivation in the New Testament. Inheritance is used to inspire godly conduct in a number of places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, Titus chapter 3, and Colossians 3, Paul uses the reward of inheritance to motivate Christians to serve their masters and employers by working heartily. Hebrews is a study in motivation by itself. The author uses both negative and positive motivations. We'll talk a little more about the negative motivations. But a positive motivation that we find in Hebrews is tied to our eternal significance in Christ's coming kingdom and inheriting salvation with him and partaking, becoming partakers of Christ in that kingdom, sharing with him in that kingdom. I think that eternal significance is most fully realized in a life of discipleship when we lose our lives only to find them. Jesus gave the prospect of following him to his disciples in a life of eternal significance when he said to them, I will make you fishers of men. From now on, you're not just going to catch fish, you're going to catch men. And that motivated them with eternal significance. He appealed to the powerful urge to invest our lives in something of eternal value that can only be fulfilled in a life of discipleship that allows us to find why we were really in this world, why we were created. In 1983, John Scully quit a high position in PepsiCo to become president of Apple Computers, a very risky move for him. Apple's co-founder, Steve Jobs, goaded him into that decision by asking him this question. He said, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or do you want, to make, do you want a chance to change the world? And he opted for more significance. As Christians, we not only want to know that we outlive this life, we want to know that we supersede this life with a purpose that is eternal. And that significance is conditioned on faithfulness and obedience and service, but it motivates us as well on to these virtues. Let's talk about rewards. I see rewards as a broader category than eternal significance, rewards that are enjoyed both in this life and the next life. Johnny may clean his room because he's promised a dollar to do so. Now, wait a minute. I know that that illustration might grate a little against your soul 
and it draws into question the whole propriety of rewards as a motivation for which we are often criticized, right? Isn't it selfish for Johnny to take a dollar to clean his room? That's just a self-serving purpose. Wait a minute, it's not that simple. That's not an easy question to answer. How do we know that Johnny's motives weren't really to take the dollar and not spend it on himself, but buy a gift for his parents? Do we desire rewards for selfish gain or to better enjoy God and serve Him? We read in the Bible that crowns are given. But in Revelation chapter 4, they're given back in worship. Whatever the crowns are, they're used to glorify God. If we can glorify Him better by receiving rewards, what is wrong with that? Jesus promised rewards, and so here the judgment seat of Christ comes into play. Each will give an account for what each person has done, as Dale has said. Not another, but ourselves. I don't think Lily Tomlin was thinking of the uh, Bema seat when she said, uh, we're all in this alone. But her observation applies, doesn't it? We all face it, but we're all going to be there alone, giving an account only for ourselves. Paul saw the, saw the judgment seat of Christ as a motivation for his ministry in persuading men, 2 Corinthians 5. The whole discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is a discussion, I believe, in the context of ministry and those who build on the ministry of another. There are good motives, gold, silver, precious stones that are rewarded. Now note that in, in that passage and that in other passages, rewards are sometimes not specified. They remain unclear. And to be honest with you, I'm not all that sure what crowns really refer to and how literally we should take them. Do we see them as something we put on a mantle to admire? There was a man who walked into a trophy shop for the very first time. He looked around and he said, man, this guy's good. <laughs> I don't think that's the idea of crowns. I would like to think more that it is the capacity to enjoy and experience God to a greater degree, which is what I really want. And it helps me fulfill that desire. Some rewards Jesus taught were temporal in nature. Peter said, what do we get for leaving everything? And Jesus said, you'll receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands, as well as in the future. I think it speaks of the richness of life, the quality of relationships, the contentment that we can have in this life by following him. We know that their rewards can also be a negative motivation in the sense of we can lose them. Jesus taught the loss of rewards in the kingdom through parables. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 taught that improper motives, wood, hay, straw, will burn at the bema so that a person suffers loss, though he himself is saved. I don't believe that serving God for rewards is a mercenary motivation. I think God rewards us in a way that we can enjoy His goodness more deeply, or so that we are consoled for the sacrifices that we make. Rewards are often unspecified, but I do know that they're gladly given by God, and who am I to deny God a pleasure? If it's good for Him, it must be good for us, and I don't apologize for that motivation, especially when I know that I can use them or give them back to Him in worship. Another motivation we'll call duty. I don't think this is one we contemplate a lot. 
And by duty, I mean an action that's, that comes from a sense of obligation or commitment to a purpose or a calling. It's action that springs from personal convictions to a higher purpose. Johnny, again, may clean his room because it is right to do so, and he has obligated himself and committed himself to do so. He's an honorable boy. Now, we would hope that duty would be accompanied by love and gratitude and higher motivations, but I think it can be compelled by its own motive. A Sunday school teacher may not feel like teaching. She may not feel love in her heart because of circumstances in her life, but she shows up to teach because she committed to God to do that, and I wouldn't criticize her. Duty may result in rewards, but it doesn't need rewards or expect rewards. Jesus taught in the parable of the faithful servant that the servant is not first rewarded with a meal for his work, but he's expected to do his duty in preparing his master's meal before he eats himself. He himself eats. <laughs> Still early for me. Jesus said, does he thank, does the master thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, and you've done all those things which are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. I believe that Jesus was motivated by duty and purpose. Of course, love for his father, but duty and purpose as well. When he was tempted to be distracted from his goal of preaching the gospel from town to town by the physical needs of people, he said, no, for this purpose I came forth. I've got to go to the next town and preach. And he turned his back on people who need healing. He went to the agony of the cross out of love, but also out of a sense of duty to his Father's will, so that he, at the end, was able to say, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. I did my duty. Jesus was called by God to high priestly duties, and in Hebrews chapter 2, he was called a faithful priest. Faithful to what? Faithful to his duty. And likewise, I think believers can feel a sense of duty to God's calling in ministry. Paul told Timothy to fulfill your ministry. And Paul himself was motivated by his calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He considered it a divine appointment. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, he told the Ephesian elders, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish the race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so Paul was able to say at the end of his ministry, I fought the fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. You know, they say there's two kinds of people. Those who finish what they start, and so on. A sense of duty helps us finish what we start. In one of the past Olympics, there was a, there was a Tanzanian marathon runner. He finished hours after everybody else. Only a small remnant of the crowd remained as he, he stumbled into the arena and made his final lap with bloodied knees from an earlier fall. Why did he stay? Why did he endure the race? Why did he finish when he knew he was last, hours after the last runner? He was asked those questions later. And he said, my country didn't send me 7,000 miles to start a race. My country sent me 7,000 miles to finish the race. He did his duty. We could talk about spiritual gifts and our obligation to use what God has given us and not neglect our gifts, to stir them up, as Paul said. There are analogies that speak of duty. The picture of a steward in the New Testament is one who must be faithful 
to what has been entrusted to him. Paul considered the gospel ministry a sacred trust, which he needed to fulfill and pass on to others. He considered himself an ambassador for Christ. He compared the Christian to a dutiful soldier, farmer, athlete. Maybe his favorite picture was one of a servant who was obligated and bound to obey his master. When duty is involved, faithfulness is necessary, and that's why Jesus commended faithful stewards in his parables. He commended those, and Paul commended those who are faithful in their duty as well. And so we have the admonition in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Duty can be from the wrong reasons, but duty can also be from noble reasons. It may not evoke the nobler sentiments of love and gratitude, but I think we have to give it some credit. A godly sense of duty lives up to the virtues of integrity, truthfulness, respect, submission, commitment, loyalty, diligence, responsibility, and faithfulness. Finally, let's talk about fear. Fear, perhaps, is a motivation more not to do evil than it is to do good or to serve God. But it works. Johnny may clean his room for fear of punishment. But when the threat of punishment is removed, so is the motivation. In the negative sense, fear is the most immature of the motivations. Love is far superior. We know that from 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Perfect love casts out the fear of judgment. A negative judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul's aim was to be pleasing to the Lord, he said. The inverse of that is that he did not want to be displeasing to the Lord, or we could say he feared being displeasing, and so he was motivated to be pleasing to the Lord. He feared being disqualified from a lack of discipline, from receiving a reward at the Bema seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. And there are other passages. Certainly, if we get rewards at the at the uh, judgment seat of Christ, we feared being denied rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. We read of shame at the judgment seat, of rewards burning. Now, some may find themselves serving God out of fear of God's discipline. Servants are told to obey masters in sincerity of heart, fearing God. For this, there is a reward, but Paul goes on to say, he who does wrong will be repaid for what he's done, Colossians chapter 3. It doesn't sound like a denial of rewards, but a negative re recompense, which may be temporal chastisement. God holds us accountable for our ministries and actions, and whatever good we may gain can be turned into a motivating fear on the other side as a prospect of losing that good. Now, again, the book of Hebrews is a mixture of motivations. We spoke a little very briefly about the positive motivations, but there are the negative motivations in the five warning passages. They evoke a sense of fear for those who are not willing to endure in the faith. And I believe that those five warning passages are written to Christians, no question, no doubt. And that's my latest study in my latest newsletter. They sound ominous, though they are undefined. But doesn't that ambiguity and uncertainty even heighten the effect? As when we tell Johnny, you know, you better clean your room or you're going to be sorry. What do you mean, Dad? You don't want to know what I mean. 
Maybe we ought to thank God that we don't, he didn't specify what he's talking about in those warning passages. There's a more positive sense of fear in the word reverence, which many would prefer to use. We serve God out of reverence, and even Hebrews in chapter 12, 28 speaks of, tells us to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. I think fear comes in when positive motivations that draw us to serve Christ are not enough. The negative motivation keeps us from slipping back. And such fear doesn't appeal to higher virtues sometimes, but to self-preservation. Now, I've been teaching as adjunct college faculty for 10 years now, and just a few weeks ago, I had to flunk my first student. Tried to motivate him in every way I could. I showed grace. I told the whole class, mainly on his behalf. I do this sometimes, but as he was doing so poorly, I told the whole class, you can drop your lowest homework grade. Didn't motivate him. I showed him mercy when he handed in late assignments. I lessened the late penalty, cut it in half. Didn't motivate him. I saw he was failing, so I finally just told him, I said, look, you're failing, you're going to waste your class, you're going to waste your money, you're going to lose everything. Fear. Didn't motivate him. Had to flunk him. I think fear can still be used by God to shape godly conduct and character, especially with those perhaps who are less mature, until they learn to serve God from a higher motive. Martin Luther, of course, didn't always serve God out of fear, as he might have started out. He eventually fled the legalism of Catholicism when he discovered a refuge and a reason to serve God in the grace of the book of Romans. These legitimate biblical motivations for serving God or living a godly life certainly overlap at times, and they work together at times. And I think that we're influenced by different motives at different times under different circumstances, according to your disposition or background or experiences and biblical knowledge. It's hard to separate these things. And we need to keep that in mind. Quickly, some practical implications. Of course, illegitimate motivations have no place in the Christian's life or service. Legalism cannot produce anything that is pleasing to God or true godliness. We know that. But the question remains, why are we serving God? What are our motivations? And how are we going to motivate the people under our ministries to serve God? With legitimate motivations of love and gratitude, etc.? Would our motivations be fodder for repentance or a foundation for reward? I think that we need to call into account those who are ministering with selfish or unworthy motives. If judgment begins with the house of God, then let us judge our own before God allows some calamity or scandal to weaken our witness and impact. We need to warn Christians about and confront those who preach things like prosperity or practice hucksterism and fundraising and hold phony miracle services. These pro-wrestlers of religion disgrace God and deceive Christians with their deceitful motives and selfish motives. If we don't call them into account for the motives, their motives and actions, then, to quote Barry Beck, a New York Ranger who was trying to explain who started a brawl in a Stanley Cup playoff, who said, 
we have only one person to blame, and that's ourselves. Rather, we need to inspire Christians with godly living and service and the best of motives, like love and gratitude. And to do that, that's where preaching grace comes in. We must constantly remind them of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, who gives us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And if we want to make true disciples, we need to make sure that they're motivated by the right motives. And they'll go on after the course is finished. And we sign off in their books. We must teach the higher motivations of both temporal and eternal consequences for all of our motives. And then in our preaching and our teaching and our counseling, we should try to bring about change by appealing to the motives of love first. And then gratitude and eternal significance and reward and duty and maybe fear if necessary. And the resultant changes in people's life will give them something of value forever and will honor God. Well, I've just tried to shed a little bit of light on a subject that I find as a whole is rarely systematized or discussed. And it is a complex subject, I think, not given to easy analysis. Why do we do what we do? But we're complex creatures, and we rarely understand our own motives for doing things. But God does. And fortunately, He will be the final judge of our motives. And when we serve Him with the best motives, we will please Him in our lives and our ministries, and pure motives will be rewarded. I really believe that the best benefit from the purest motives is that we enter into the heart of God Himself, a greater experience of Him, and a greater joy from Him. Those who serve God from pure motives experience a great joy, not only in this life, but in the life to come. I close with a story. Some time ago, a few years ago, when my children were very little, and I always looked for entertainment that I could afford, I got some free tickets to a Navy band concert in downtown Fort Worth. Brought my four children. I, I, they were very young. I forget their exact ages at this point, but I wanted to introduce them, introduce them to different kind of music, good music, and so we went, and we went early, got a good seat on the third row. The band started playing their music, and about the second song in, two of them were already out. I asked them later if they enjoyed it, and they said, yeah, it was pretty good. The other two stayed awake for the whole concert, asked them later, they said, yeah, it was all right, pretty good. My wife and I enjoyed it. We liked the kind of music they did, and they did a variety of stuff, and it was fun, and I really enjoyed it, really had a good time. At the end of the concert, though, what the band did was they wanted to recognize each of the four branches of the armed service. And so uh, what they did was they played the theme song. Is that what you call it, the theme song? Anthem, whatever, of the armed service. And they invited those in the audience who were veterans to stand when their anthem was played. So uh, first it was through the Army, and they played when the caissons go rolling along, and gray-haired men throughout the audience stood, and the audience gave them a nice round of polite applause and recognition of their service to their country. And then they prayed uh, the Air Force song, um, Off We Go Into the Wild Blue Yonder. And the Air Force veterans stood up in another round of polite applause. And then it was the Marine song, when from the halls of Montezuma and the Marines stood, and more applause. Of course, they saved the best for last. The Navy band played the Navy song, Anchors Away. And people began to stand for that. Well, we were sitting in the third row. 
there was a man in the very first row. He stood. He had gray hair, half a uniform, didn't fit him well, had in former years, I'm sure. He turned around to face us directly in front of me with tears streaming down his face. He saluted the audience, and the audience exploded in applause for him. What was this man experiencing? What was his level of appreciation? He was experiencing joy and reward. Did he serve his country for love of country, for gratitude, for what America had done for him? Out of a sense of duty, it really didn't matter at that point. He had served well, and he had served for good reasons, and he had entered into his joy. He had served well, and he was reaping his reward. And so, friends, in the same way, I'm just saying, let us serve well with good motives, and we too will enter into the joy of the Lord. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.